In today's episode of the Amman Wire podcast. For an architect to do this in a masjid is a testament to someone who understood the ethos of the deen, the idea of ibadah and worship connected to a broader arc of Islamic history. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. Salim here. I joined by my co-host Irfan. Assalamu alaikum. Hey, assalamu Salim. Good to be back. And joining us today is um, someone very special to the Iman Wire team is Ozer um, Saluji, who is a professor of architecture at Carleton University. Um, for those avid Iman Wire um, readers, I know I know you're out there. Ozer um, wrote the very first article on our website when we launched Iman Wire, which was. Um, almost almost six years ago and um so i uh, he has he has a very very um a special place in my heart as the very first contributor to Manwar and um i also ask for his forgiveness and that we have not had him on until many years later as a, on a podcast but i'm really um really overjoyed to have him on with us um sidi was there assalamualaikum and welcome for the invitation to be back here it's uh, it's lovely to be here with you all so uh, one of the things that we wanted to talk about with you, Sidhu uh, um, is, is uh, you know, you you have uh, your focus is in architecture, and uh, and uh, actually the piece you wrote in Imanware was about specifically Ottoman architecture. And we wanted to get some um, some some thoughts about from you about um, the connection of spirituality in the tradition of Ottoman architecture, and maybe we can we can build on that and see. Um, how that, what are the ramifications of that? And maybe what are some of the lessons that we can take today as we as Muslims um, are, you know, in our own context here in America and here in North America are trying to develop our own um, style, our own aesthetic, um, but, you know, a, but also imbuing the same spirituality that Ottoman, uh, the Ottoman tradition uh, is really well known for. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um... Um, you know, I discovered Sinan as a student. Um, I was in my second year or my third year of undergraduate education, and I I didn't know that he existed until um, a mentor of mine, uh, uh, you know, brought his name up in conversation. Um, and, and as I learned more about this man, subhanAllah, I just became increasingly um, awestruck that he was so absent from architectural education in general. Uh, because as an architect, um, he's considered to be one of the most prolific architects in all of history, uh, you know, building over 475 projects over the course of his lifetime. He began when he was uh, quite senior in age. Um, and it struck me as odd that uh, there was, um, a, you know, a kind of epistemological gap in the architectural record, uh, like of knowledge. Um, about who and what this person, um, you know, actually did. And so um, I became sort of intellectually fascinated with this person. Uh, I had never been to Turkey. I had never been to Istanbul, um, but grew to kind of uh, love the man and and the work that he produced over the course of his lifetime. And, uh, you know, alhamdulillah, um, when I went to Istanbul for the first time, I got to see his works in person. Uh, and they were ajib, um, an incredible, um, an incredible experience in terms of realizing the transformation that this man underwent, 
in order to create the architecture um, uh, to build, excuse me, the architecture that you know that he was able to build through the patronage of three, you know. V- uh, very uh, different but very important sultans, not the least of which, of course, is uh, Suleiman al Kanuni, Suleiman the Magnificent, uh, the lawgiver. And so, alhamdulillah, um, I, um, I managed to kind of see, as it were, you know, the works in, in real time, in real space, and real light, uh, and, uh, and to get a sense of the, of the impact that, um, uh, that Islam had upon his thinking, and um, as a result, the impact that he would have. Um, in a way, as a, as a kind of builder and shaper of the Ottoman world, um, Alhamdulillah, it was uh, it was quite remarkable. I think that you know, as um, as a kind of quick portrait of the of the man, he um, uh, it's debatable as to when he was born. Some scholars say he was born around um, you know fourteen eighty eight, fourteen ninety. Um, we're not quite sure where. Uh, probably he was born in the village of Agirnas in Kayseri, uh, in central Turkey. Um, and he was conscripted into the Devshirme, which was the, the kind of um, the levy that uh, the, the Ottoman uh, uh, bureaucracy um, at the time had in order to kind of staff uh, the Ottoman court. And he became eventually a Janissary. Um, he became uh, uh, chief bodyguard, uh, you know, to the Sultan, rising to the post of Mimar Basha, essentially the, you know, the chief architect of the Ottoman Empire. Um, which was quite remarkable because, uh, you know, again, it was quite late in his life when he did that. Um, and if I can, I think that one of the things that's especially remarkable about Sinan um, in, in particular is the, is um, um, in addition to the many works that he produced in Istanbul and around the world, uh, like his mark on the Islamic world um, is undeniable. Um, he worked on projects uh, in Egypt, uh, in the Haram, um, um, all over. Uh, but the, the, um, the, the, uh, the apogee, I think is the word that some of the you know, scholars use, the apogee of Ottoman architecture, classical Ottoman architecture that they describe is the Selimiye Jami in Edirne, which is about two, two and a half hours north, uh, northwest of Istanbul. Uh, this is an imperial mosque that he built in, um, the, third of three. So the first that he built uh, is in Istanbul uh, called the Shehzadeh Jami, which initially was uh, to be for Sultan Suleiman, uh, but Sultan Suleiman's son passed away and that mosque instead was dedicated to his son, um, hence the term Shehzadeh, which is the prince's mosque. And then of course, the second mosque is the Suleimania, which sits on the tallest hill of Istanbul overlooking the Bosphorus. Uh, spectacular, spectacular example, um, a masterpiece in Istanbul of Ottoman architecture. Uh, and the third imperial mosque that he built was the Mosque of Selim in Edirne, um, which is um, um, a kind of masterclass in uh, seeing how an Islamic ethos underpins the making of space. Mm-hmm. Um, as a building, um, it's exceptionally well-designed. Uh, it's beautifully symmetrical. It sits above a market, which is um, one of the really interesting things about this is that to access the Selimiya in part, you go through the souk, uh, through the space of the world. And when you leave it, you enter a garden. Uh, and there in the garden is the masjid. Um, and so the the project itself is uh, um, very beautiful, but for, for many um, subtle reasons, I think. And these are the reasons, I think, that really um, symbolize and emblematize the 
the the nature that the dean had on on this man as an architect. He trained as a stonecutter. Um, his name was you know Joseph when he was born, likely a Christian. Um, he he learned how to shape stone with his own hands. He built the um, he carved the muqarnas of the mihrab at the Sulaymaniyah himself. He understood what craft was, but really, I think that it is the the impact that that Islam had upon him, and the transformation that you see in the practice of this architect that's really evident at the Salimia. Um, as a, you know, as a mosque, um, you um, uh, you enter the Salimia Jami and you enter it immediately under the space of the dome. One of the concerns I think that he had as an architect was to lessen the distance between um, the interior and the exterior. And so the, the courtyard, which is in a way a kind of analog of the space of the world, um, it's public, it's open, you know, people walk through it, they experience it, they, you know, they sit, they talk, uh, families walk through, children play, uh, and then you cross the threshold, uh, you know, the beautiful door to the masjid, and you enter immediately under the space of this uh, spectacular dome, which is an octagonal dome supported by buttresses that are a part, essentially, of the walls that hold up the masjid. And so unlike his earlier works, this is the space that is completely unified. Uh, there's nothing that interrupts your experience of the masjid. It is a single total space. Um, and interestingly, um, and this is just a, a reflection on my part, um, the, uh, there is um, an architectural device in Ottoman mosques called the Muazzin Mahfil, which is a platform that the Muazzin stands on. Um, and in, in many of the masajid in Istanbul, um, this platform is to the, you know, to the right and to the top of the masjid near the mimbar. Um, in the Suleymaniyah and in the Shehzadeh mosques, uh, this platform is actually attached to one of the larger columns nearest the mimbar. But here at the Selimia, um, it's not. It's, it's, it's a free-standing thing directly underneath the center of the dome. Uh, and directly beneath that, there is a fountain. Uh, and so it's possible to consider this space as um, um, a Meccan analog of the Kaaba. Uh, that the fountain beneath the Mu'azzin Mahfil is an analog of uh, of Zamzam beneath the Kaaba. The geometry of the of the mosque is cubic. Uh, the platform itself is cubic. Uh, the Mu'azzin stands above this uh, at this fountain and gives the adhan beneath the dome of the heavens um, in a space that is uninterrupted in its volume. Uh, and one of the remarkable things, um, among the remarkable things about the Selimia is that it is a space that is, in a way, um, where light uh, uh, supersedes matter. Uh, and I say that because um, there's nothing that interrupts your view. And as you, as you experience the space, you realize how light-filled it actually is. Um, in architectural drawing, there's a convention called uh, um, a section, which is a cut through a building that shows its construction. Uh, and if you, if you uh, draw an architectural section through the Selimia, you realize how much physical stuff is cut through is actually not very much. And so the whole building, in a way, is a kind of ephemeral presence uh, where, where light supersedes matter and materiality. Um, and, uh, and in a way, um, for an architect to do this in a masjid, 
to create this as a kind of analog, I think, is um, is a testament to someone who understood the ethos of the deen, the idea of ibadah and worship connected to a broader arc of Islamic history. Um, I mean, he did many amazing things architecturally, uh, you know, not the least of which is kind of a reorientation of the axis of the masjid, uh, the courtyard as the world, the, the musalla as a place to actually connect to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and then beyond that, um, the the cemetery, the garden, the the you know the garden of of of, of all of our futures, um, which is actually quite antithetical to what, for example, the Taj Mahal is as a kind of orientation of the garden and a tomb and a masjid. Mm-hmm. Um, here is an architect that understood the kind of the reality of the masjid as a catalyst for uh, the ibadah of Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's really fascinating because, you know, it, it takes a, a very special heart attuned to that reality mm. to deliberately create um, a physical space Absolutely. that speaks to our spiritual journey, which is what is... Because talking to many um, you know people who visited um, both the Sulaymaniyah and the mm. Salamiyah, um, the, the, the Salamiyah is considered the peak, mm-hmm. uh, I think, right, of, yes. of, of, of Sinan, but... Um, many people who visit, they are not quite sure that it is really the peak versus Sulaymaniyah. So yes. do you think it's some sort of, of uh, some some journey that we as the visitor still have to take to get to that realization? Because the analog that you're describing is something that I would not have have considered. But it, obviously, he's going through a journey in his career. Absolutely, but yes. he's maybe coming to a certain spiritual realizations that makes him, makes him want to do um, what he did in that that masjid as opposed to Sulaymaniyah. And maybe we, me, we as the visitors also, it's also like trying to push us to try to look outside, you know, what we usually conceive of, what we think of as, as, as beautiful and aesthetic and perfect. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, he described, he described his own journey very similarly. When he uh, completed the Shehzadeh, he said that this was the work of, uh, of an apprentice. Mm. Uh, when he completed the Sulaymaniyah, I think he observed that, you know, this was the work of a journeyman, someone who is, um, you know, growing into, you know, a knowledge of a craft. And when he completed the Salimia, it's reported that he said, you know, like this is the work of someone who perhaps might have accomplished something. Uh, and so there is absolutely a kind of maturation of his work, I think, as you as you see his architecture in sequence, if you see his architecture mm-hmm. in sequence. The Sulaymaniya, make no mistake, is spectacular. It is a, it is a beautiful masjid and has layers and layers of meaning embedded in it um, that you know that uh, you know that are very beautiful to speculate yeah, on. Yeah, I mean one of the well. one of the one of the things that I really realized when I was able to visit was you know you go into this Sulaymaniya and it's this huge space and you know it's like this grandeur, it's this Jalali yes. type feeling. But then um, you know as you get towards there's these little nooks and crannies. Like I can't describe it, like a niche, a niche like our little yeah. zawiya. Yeah. Like there's a like a little area you can just go there, and suddenly you sit there, and it's like a place of dhikr, and it's just this place you don't even feel like the grandeur anymore. You're just in this very private, absolutely small area. It's a it's a uh, a beautiful observation. Um, a student of mine described it as a, as a kind of monumental intimacy mm-hmm. that you could be in that space, and and you could and. Um, you know, feel and sense a kind of grandeur. You know, obviously, it is an imperial masjid, and it's it is impressive physically. Uh, but there are also um, opportunities to be, um, you know, almost completely in khalwa. 
that you know the walls are thick and the space is cool and you can sit in a window and you can look at the Bosphorus or you can see you know the waters of uh, you know that surround Istanbul and you can hear the birds in the garden um, it's a it's a remarkable um, you know a negotiation between scale large and small macro and micro uh, and um, and he I think um, grew into a kind of mastery of that negotiation uh, and there are you know of course uh, m- many examples of his work all throughout uh, the Muslim world uh, one of my personal favorites is the Sokulu Mehmet Pasha Jami, which uh, is in Kaita, um, uh, just in Sultan Ahmed, uh, a mm-hmm. very small masjid designed for a grand vizier, uh, which also has a very beautiful intimacy about it, um, an amazing urban solution to the site, which was among his um, his um, his geniuses, I think, that the way that he understood placing architecture, situating it, locating it, um, is a very good lesson, I think, for uh, you know, for us when we think about how we might engage in a contemporary context with the buildings that we make and that we produce. Um, he understood um, um, architecture as an environmental ethic; uh, that there was an environmental ethos behind it. The Sokulu Mehmed Pasha, the kuliyas, the great kuliyas or complexes um, um, of Istanbul, uh, uh, the Selimia. They had integrated public services, they had soup kitchens, they had hospices, they had madrasas, they had uh, very sophisticated for the time water catchment and retaining um, you know, devices to uh, save water, to provide it to fountains, public fountains, and so on. Um, so, I mean, he understood um, architecture as an environmental ethic. He understood architecture as a morphological ethic, one that had morphological unity. So something that had formal unity. It's not just a kind of mishmash assemblage of, of, uh, of shapes and forms, but something that um, has um, amazing relational unity um, in the spaces that, you know, that it has. And, you know, perhaps most importantly, that um, he understood architecture as a vehicle uh, to journey to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, that that was something that the, you know, the spaces of the Muslim world, the Ottoman Empire, were you know were meant to facilitate and so um remarkable subhanallah a remarkable architect remarkable personality um not much of his personal writings remain and so we don't know much about his life except from turkish texts uh from his autobiography uh uh, from a text that was transcribed by um a poet scholar friend of his uh the book of buildings Um, and so this is an architect that we have to come to know through um, his work um, and through his spaces themselves. So what's interesting is that you mentioned that there was this uh, patronage of mm-hmm. different sultans, and he had to probably navigate that political, yes, uh, you know, yes. landscape <laughs> and the different personalities, the Absolutely. different happenings, the pressures, financial, cultural, mm-hmm. and whatnot. You know, as you see, the Muslim community today is going through a lot of these types of fluctuations, mm-hmm. and yet when we talk about the absence of artistic leadership, the creative leaders. Uh, you know, in the American landscape, for example, there's an absence of mm-hmm. a stylistic um, uh, approach to Islamic architecture. Uh, with few exceptions, mosques are either uh, like replicating past grandeurs, yes. uh, uh, civilizations, uh, but not necessarily maybe thinking forward. Yes. And you have also the utilitarian model, which is right. probably the most prevalent. You know, the the, yes. the little door shop uh, mosque, uh, the strip mall mosque. The storefront mosque. Right. Yes. right. The former, like, car auto <laughs> parts store now yep. turned to a mosque. 
So how do you see the patronage aspect of it as being instrumental in allowing artistic, the craftsmanship to really shine through and allow the community to kind of see that they themselves in this time and in this place, yes. not in the past, but in the in the very much the, the real present, yeah. can create this aspect of beauty? SubhanAllah, it's an excellent question and something that I wrestle with a lot, actually thinking about that. Um, what is the you know, the search for a North American expression of Islamic architectural identity. Right. Um, we have, alhamdulillah, an, uh, an amazing historical arc in our ummah. We have some of the most beautiful examples of architecture that you could possibly imagine from the Mamluk to the, uh, you know, to the Seljuk, to the Abbasid, to the Umayyad, uh, you know, the Ottoman, of course, the Ilkhanids, the Fatimids, and so on. Um, it's an amazing, uh, it's a... Uh, uh, a treasury of riches. Um, and um, how do we respond to th- those historical arcs, given that we live uh, in D.C., in Ottawa, in Vancouver, in Florida, in Coral Gables, and, uh, and, you know, um, and in Europe and elsewhere? Um, one of the things I think that's remarkable about the historical model is that Suleiman, uh, the Magnificent, for example, um, Al-Kanuni, was himself an artist that the patron was someone that understood art and beauty and poetry and letters. Uh, but that was the Ottoman, I think every sultan had, yeah, a, cr- had a craft. Was training, absolutely. Calligraphy, leather work. Absolutely. You, you name absolutely. It, yes. And so that was something that we valued right. as a community in our leaders, uh, right. in our community leaders, that th- they were broadly and deeply educated in um, in in a variety of disciplines and experiences, and they would understand the value of what it meant to have a beautiful building or to or to produce beautiful calligraphy, uh, that there was an investment in that. Um, it's an excellent question and one that I struggle with, and I'm afraid I, I probably don't have a definitive answer for how we can engage with it in a North American context, except to say that we have to start to value, I think, um, these kinds of disciplinary practices as a community, that uh, there is um, an amazing... Um, you know, there are phenomenal Muslim artists um, in the world. There are amazing architects and designers and writers and calligraphers and poets. Uh, and I think a celebration of Islamic arts and letters um, is one of the things that we might actually be more invested in as a, as, as a broad community. Um, we need to train Muslim architects. We need to train Muslim designers. We need to train, you know, those who understand the kind of ethos of the deen that Allah is beautiful and he loves beauty. Uh, And so engaging with the question of beauty in our everyday life, in our akhlaq, obviously, and in our deen and and in our ibadah, yes, but also in the things that we produce and um, and we put out into the world. I mean, architecture is a public act. Um, buildings are public spaces, um, at least they're publicly visible spaces by and large. And so they're a part of our landscape. Um, and as and as a community that needs to engage with questions of uh, sustainability, um, with uh, tenderness towards the environment, with sensitivity towards space, um, um, some of the, the biggest indicators of public health um, is the environment that we live in. And in a way, this is why uh, some of our um, our historical cities were the beautiful spaces that they were, is because they understood that the city itself, architecture, buildings, streets, were indicators of public health. 
Uh, and for us, that is much larger than just the kind of, you know, the, you know, the air quality. It's the health of our qulub, it's the health of our nufus, um, and, and how we engage um, as, um, as spiritual beings in a, in a physical terrain. You mentioned Sinan's intimacy with the craft as a, mm-hmm. someone who shaped stones as a young yes. uh, person uh, w- with his own hands. And then we also talked about some of the features, you know, the prayer, um, the apparatus that that's for the mm-hmm. person who's the, the muaddin. Yes. Many of the listeners will know that from Medina when they go. Yes. Yes. That is a legacy of the Ottoman architecture that you see Absolutely. in that part of the Prophet's mosque. But then you also see... Um, you know the morqanas people may not be familiar with that that's right. a that's a transition right from a square yes. box essentially absolutely. to a spherical dome absolutely a uniquely islamic feature that wasn't created or borrowed from any other cultural context absolutely absolutely and that was one of um you know sinan's um i'm not sure obsession is the right word but one of his deep curiosities was transitional spaces how do you actually bridge across differences in this case a geometric one but it could be um you know, like it's easy and I think good to think about the spiritual analog of that as well. Right. That transitioning from a square base to a spherical dome is not easy. It's uh, like a temporal aspect, right? So absolutely. the square is the confinement of the temporal life. Absolutely. The spherical is the expression exactly. of the cosmological heavens. And absolutely. That and, you know, life. the act, the act of salah itself is right. something that is about a particular orientation. Ascension, mirage. Right? Yes, yeah. yeah. absolutely. Uh, the yeah. alignment of the hearts of all of the ibad right. towards Mecca, standing shoulder to shoulder. Right. Uh, right. The act of salah is something where the heart is physically elevated above the brain. Uh, in sujood, yeah. um, that the heart is suspended in the space between the floor of the ground where your aql is now debased in front of Allah, Subhanallah. and hangs in the space that is negotiated in a way by the architect. And the heart. Yeah, and sure. the heart, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. And this, I think, is one of the amazing things uh, about, um, you know, about uh, Mimar Sinan. I think that there was an understanding of that dimension um, of, uh, of what ibadah is, and that became a part of his architecture. Is there places in a, a, that our listeners could look to, even even in their own local mosque, and say, "Well, that is something that was from the genius of Sinan." Are there some things that did not exist? Maybe the shape of the minaret that's commonly associated with the Ottoman mosques, the domes, the mihrab location, the mimbar itself. Are there things like that that any listener could look at the mosque and be like, "This is actually influence of a man who lived so long ago in a different time than my own," but yet. Here's his legacy right here in my local mosque in, you know, Naperville, Illinois, for example. Another another good question. I mean, I think that um, um, the the formal mosque that most people conjure up in their minds when they think about a masjid is an Ottoman mosque. Yeah. That I mean, it's the most it's the most um, familiar image in in Islamic architectural history, uh, and it's one that is the most commonly cited image of a mosque when thinking about it. And so I think that there's a kind of enduring legacy of that as a, as a kind of image. Um, but in particular, I think that his innovations, Sinan's uh, good innovations, <laughs> were um, were about space at large and about structure and about geometry. Uh, and um, I I couldn't say you know with any certainty that uh, a particular detail is attributable to him. Although I think that um, broadly speaking, you could say a craft. Uh, care in construction. He was very discerning as a as a as a stonemason and very discerning as an architect. Um, beautiful, elegant, resolved geometries. 
that would be um, you know something that he would have been very much um, uh, um, insistent on, I think, in his work. Uh, but no, good questions to ask, and you know, perhaps more research for me to do. Uh, <laughs> well. so we're going to have to uh, bring you back on, Azair, uh, because uh, uh, I mean, this is just some really some fascinating um, points of reflection. And uh, I'd like to, you know, when uh, when time permits for you, we can bring you back on and we can talk a little bit more about sure. about right. Islamic architecture and really the, you know, the path forward, especially for us and in that connection between the aesthetic and the spiritual that is so beautifully exemplified in the works of Sunan. So time, time, unfortunately, we can't continue the conversation any further today, but inshallah, we'll have you on again and we can we can have another uh, conversation about um some of these points um, and uh, to all the listeners uh, again remember uh, please uh, uh, li- subscribe to the podcast share it with your friends and family so they can anyone who can benefit uh, leave us a uh, five star review on iTunes and until then uh, we'll see you in the next episode Assalamu alaikum peace be unto you